Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. Today is Horticulture Day. I'm Charity Nebbe. Pumpkins are enjoying their annual moment in the spotlight, but the pumpkin is just one of the many varieties of squash that make this a wonderful and delicious time of year. Iowa State University Extension Horticulture Specialist Dan Phileas is here today to tell us what kinds of squash we should grow next year or maybe what kinds we should pick up this weekend at the farmer's market. Hello, Dan. Hi, Charity. How are you? Good. Thank you so much for being here. And all right, we've got our summer squashes and our winter squashes. But of course, all of our winter squashes are grown in the summer months, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. This is just a a squash that has been allowed to mature so that the rind hardens. And and of course, it's bred for different characteristics. So it's going to have that nice sweet flesh. Um, But yeah, it's uh, they, they are also grown in the summer, as you say. All right. And so this is harvest season, and it's also the season where a lot of people are putting squash into storage. Some of it needs to be eaten right away. But let's talk about your favorite varieties to grow. What do you love? Oh, my goodness. Um, it's You know, I was putting down, jotting down a list here right before we went on air because I uh, there's so many, and it's hard to, you know, once the seed catalog comes out, it, I just, I go wild. But on the short list, uh, delicata is definitely there. And this is one that, you know, there are some named varieties out there, but, uh, just an open pollinated delicata, uh, squash is, is one of the most flavorful. And it's one also that where the, the rind is so thin and delicate, hence the name, uh, that you can pretty much eat the skin on this thing as well. I, I, I just, you know, I don't go for that necessarily. I don't try to do that, but I don't worry if I'm my spoon as I'm spooning it out. Uh, if it goes through the, the rind on that one. Right. So uh, it makes it a little a little one. easier to prepare than some of the other uh, kinds of squash that have that harder rind. Certainly. Certainly does. Yeah. Um, other ones that I really like, you know, I um, I really like acorn squash and Tabel is a really good one that is a large uh, acorn. Seems to produce year in, year out. You mentioned, you know, some of these we don't want to store as long. And those two that I just uh, talked about, Delicata and acorn, those are ones that uh, acorn definitely don't cure that one. Don't wait. Don't sit on that one. Just eat it as soon as you get it out of the out of the garden. And the delicata, very similar. Um, it tastes best when there's a little orange. This is one that is uh, a yellow with green stripes. And once those uh, green stripes start to turn orange, is when it's at the peak of flavor. Um, in addition to that, I really I really like uh, all of them. Butternuts are are delicious. Uh, the kabocha or buttercup squash, those are really good. I, I like those in a soup uh, particularly because sometimes they have a drier flesh, but it's extra sweet and it really makes a nice soup when it's blended with some stock um, or cream or something like that. All right. And the, the butternuts, uh, those store really well, right? Oh my gosh, butternuts and kabochas store very, very well. And uh, I just, I keep them in my basement. Um, you know, if they're in a, if you have the space to spread them in a single layer, they'll store better. Um, but I, I honestly don't have the space for that. So I have mine in a, in a, in a box, um, you know, two or three high. And the butternuts and kabochas store into the early, um, into, you know, late winter, early spring. All right. So have you already harvested and, and set them all up or are you in the process of curing? Oh, definitely have harvested them. Yeah, they um, 
And, and, and the curing process really uh, starts to happen in the field. You don't necessarily need to, you know, start the clock on that as soon as you cut them from the vine and, uh, and, and, and start the storage process. If, if conditions have been dry and they've been mature, then they, they may have cured in the field. So I, uh, I, yes, I, I got mine in from the field before we had those, uh, those frosts, um, in the last month. So, because, Really, that latest one that we had, what was that, early last week yeah. where it was... Um, very cold. Yeah, very cold. Yeah. <laughs> that was, uh, that, that was, that would have been detrimental for any squash. And I know a lot of farmers were scrambling to get a lot of crops out of the field at that time. So let's talk just a little bit more about the curing process because, uh, you know, a lot of people do harvest these from their gardens and set them on the counter and, and let them sit yeah. for a long time. How, how do you know when it has cured properly so that you can put it into storage. Sure. So um, the generally speaking, a couple weeks at a warmer, you know, at a warmer temperature, um, higher humidity is what does great for these, uh, these things and uh, is is good. But as you say, what are the signs that I can see, uh, you know, rather than just setting a timer uh, for it? It's really the color on the on the on the skin of these things. Like a butternut should not have any green tinges. It should be a nice buff color to it. Um, the kabochas they they were you know depending on the variety. There's gray. There's green. There's uh, reddish ones. Um, it's 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 that really brilliant color that just looks attractive. And you know if you want to play it safe, then give it a week or two um, <clears throat> to before you start to eat it after you bring it in. But usually, um, if you're bringing it in in early October, it's and you planted it at an at a at a time of of year like late late May, early June. Typically, you're pretty good with these things. But uh, it's it's appearance and um, and uh, that that's a good one to go with. All right, and let's talk a little bit about pumpkins. A lot of pumpkins, of course, are grown basically for their looks and, and used mm-hmm. just for their looks this time of year. But there are some dual purpose pumpkins out there. Do you have a variety you like to grow? Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> and this term pumpkin is so funny because we have uh, these ornamental ones that are all sorts of different colors, green, white, yellow, and and flat stacker ones, as opposed to the, the classic orange pumpkin uh, that is, uh, you know, or a small pumpkin that is called a pie pumpkin. And if you're looking for a small quote unquote pie pumpkin, that's orange that has a nice decorative look to it. I really like winter luxury. It's a small orange one, but it has like a, a white cast to the kind of like almost like a netted rind, like a cantaloupe. If you imagine like a white pattern like that over the orange background, it's really gorgeous and also delicious. All right. So it can be um, decorative and also delicious. How great is that? Yeah. I know, seriously, and a lot of the uh, those flat stacker types, the um, which are from the species cucurbit. Excuse me, <laughs> um, it's it's the maxima is the species name, and this is the ones with the soft stem. They're just like kabochas and buttercups, um, and you know they they will be very tasty. And this is like um, the Cinderella pumpkins, uh, the ones that have like a peanut looking like wartiness on the outside. Those are delicious, also. And there's one that's called a Long Island cheese that has the same color as a butternut. It's it's very similar to a butternut, but it's just in bread to be like a flat, round, pumpkin-looking one rather than an elongated butternut shape. And that one is very, very tasty as right. well. And of course, one of the, the big secrets about our love affair with pumpkin is that a lot of the pumpkin that we eat this time of year and into the holiday season yes. is actually not pumpkin at all, but 
squash, different varieties of squash. Yeah, so. exactly. It's actually a hybrid that looks a lot like a, a butternut, in fact, out in the field. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about growing um, squash. I know it's something a lot of people in Iowa have a lot of success with. What are some of the pitfalls to watch out for? Sure. Um, so uh, they, these plants like a lot of sun. They like a lot of water. They're big plants with big leaves that lo- can lose a lot of water throughout the year. So, you know, just like every other vegetable crop that um, that we talk about, a lot of water is is necessary for growing these. And that was difficult this year to come by naturally. Um, but aside from that, let's say you have all uh, the water, you've got the sunlight Planting these things, um, some people buy transplants, some people direct seed, and I've done both, and they both succeed. The one thing to watch out for if you're transplanting is that these crops have very sensitive root systems and can um, they can really get uh, set back quite a bit if you are if you say don't have ideal planting conditions you hold them in the tray and they get really leggy or yellow start to yellow and then you pull them out and you break up their roots not great so. Direct seeding is actually very, very reliable as long as the soil is good and warm to get them jumped out of the ground. Um, on the uh, on another front, there's the, the the insect pests and cucumber beetles and squash bugs are and squash vine borers are the three that most people have problems with. Cucumber beetles eat the baby plants when they first emerge in the um, in the spring, so. Covering those with a frost fabric or insect barrier is a very reliable way to um, get your plants established so that they get to a size that the cucumber beetles don't bother them if they do eat a little bit. But then they get bigger and the squash vine borer comes. And that is one that a lot of home gardeners have a problem with because Mm -hmm. um, more so than a commercial grower, because if a squash vine borer eats uh, into one or two of your plants in your garden, that might be all of them. But at a commercial scale, that's, say, you know, less than 5%. So uh, it's much more noticeable in a home scale. And covering is also effective for them. If you were to keep your plants covered until they flower, um, that would get you halfway through, more than halfway through, uh, and past the danger. Um, and then that would you uncover to allow the pollinators in for the flowers. All right. So you're, you're um, a big fan of the physical barrier method. <laughs> I really, yeah, I really am. You know, my background was as an organic grower, and so that's that is basically what I'm what I have used mostly. But there are some systemic uh, insecticides that people use that um, that can effectively, uh, you know, treat for the cucumber beetles and the squash vine borer and the um, squash bugs to some extent, uh, but uh, not not organic approved ones. But right. I, I do, yeah, Agri- Agribond, Covertan. These are varieties or. Uh, brand names for this product. And this year or this time of year, a lot of us interact with pumpkins and um, whether we've grown them or whether we're buying them. And and one of the things that can happen to pumpkins actually affects the stem, right? Yeah, yeah, you're right. This is a disease um, that, you know, you might go to the store and you might see some pumpkins with nice green handles or um, to the farmer's market, nice green handles, or you might see others in other places with a withered brown sort of brittle looking handle um, and the handle is the stem, but uh, you know, obviously we, we hold them a lot right. of times by this, but uh, um, <laughs> the, uh, the brown withered uh, brittle stem is, is a symptom of likely powdery mildew that was out in the field. And this was a very, uh, very light 
intensity year for powdery mildew. We didn't see a lot of it in the in the heart of the summer or at normal time. It really came late, so people were able to harvest before then before it was an impact. And so we've got some pretty good handles out there this year, but right. I, I do still see it here from uh, in place to place. And if you're growing pumpkins to eat, the handle is not really very important, right? No, 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 no. Some people, some people really have an affinity for like the certain like look of it, of it decoratively right, speaking. Right. But uh, yeah, it, 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 functionally, it's not a problem. Dan Phileas, Iowa State University Extension Horticulture Specialist. For more gardening information and tips, please subscribe to our Garden Variety Newsletter. You can find out more at iowapublicradio.org slash garden. I'm Charity Nebbe. Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion including Above and Beyond Cancer. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. It's Horticulture Day today. With me, Dan Phileas, Iowa State University Extension Horticulture Specialist, and Aaron Style, also ISU Extension Horticulture Specialist, is here as well. Hello, Aaron. Good morning. And they are ready to answer your questions. Give us a call, 866-780-9100, 866-780-9100. You can also send email to talkofiowa at iowapublicradio.org. And Dan, earlier you mentioned that really hard freeze that we had just last week. And of course, gardeners yeah. are always watching the weather, waiting, protecting some plants through that first frost and deciding yes. when the season has ended. But you get excited about that first freeze. Oh why? <laughs> tell me, <laughs> you know tell I me do. why. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh, I, I love it because it means that the greens that I grow in my garden get sweeter. They, these crops concentrate sugars in their tissues to act as a natural antifreeze, and therefore they're tastier to eat. You know, a lot of people know this about Brussels sprouts and, and, and parsnips, um, but uh, the other crops that I enjoy growing in my garden, like spinach and even head lettuce uh, and salad mix that I protect out in my garden, they are so tasty right now, Charity. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> kale. I've also heard kale gets even better after the first yes, freeze. Yes, yes. Ka- Kale actually becomes palatable. No, I'm just teasing. <laughs> you just have to massage it. That's the secret. Right. I agree. I'm on your, um, I agree 100%. All right. If you have a question for us or if you just want to geek out over those sweet, sweet greens after the first freeze, you can give us a call 866-780-9100 or send email to talkofiowa at iowapublicradio.org. Here's a question from Stephen in Windsor Heights. He says, this summer, we planted a maple tree with a two-inch trunk. We wrapped the trunk with corrugated tube and paper wrap, an aggressive rutting buck, tore the wrapping aside and raked the bark on one side of the trunk from six inches above the ground to at least four and a half feet. Should we apply a sealer to the wound or let it heal naturally? In the meantime, we've rewrapped the tree, securing the wrap with duct tape and sprayed it with deer repellent. 
Yeah, this is a tough situation. I had this happen to one of my trees in my yard this uh, fall as well. It's very frustrating. Um, the best defense against this is actually three strategically placed uh, sturdy like T-posts or stakes. As long as there's um, not more than 18 inches between them, they can't physically fit in there to get at the tree. That's the best protection from a rutting buck on a young tree. And it really is only the young trees where this is a problem because they like how they're flexible. Um, and, of course, the issue is is that they rub off that bark, and just below the bark is where all of the active work of transporting water and nutrients is in the tree, and so you disrupt that. There's no sealer. I would not recommend any paints, sealers, tars, anything. The tree will do its best work sealing off that area and growing over it without any of those uh, things in place. So you're just going to have to wait and let the tree do its work, and hopefully um, it can grow, um, it can seal it off and grow out of it um, with time. It is very rough on the tree, so you'll want to make sure that you continue to protect it, that you give it good care next year, um, especially being newly planted. Trees need water the first year. They also need water in years two and three, not as much as the first year. But you'll definitely want to make sure that you're doing that next year, too, so that the tree can recover from that damage as quickly and effectively as possible. So that's a great reminder that this is the right time of year to put up some of that wire fencing mm-hmm. around your younger trees if you haven't already done it. I mean, the winter is coming, Aaron, and, and a lot of things get eaten. It's not just not just rutting deer. It's hungry deer. No, rut. Rutting deer are really, really um, problematic, especially kind of early in the or mid to mid-fall around that time. They can be really problematic. The browsing doesn't happen until usually the snow starts to fly. And both deer on evergreens and rabbits on everything um, <laughs> can be really problematic. So um, protecting especially those young plants that have just been planted that aren't big, can't tolerate a little bit of damage because there isn't much there yet. Um, is really beneficial. And I mentioned what you can do for rutting deer. The rest of it is accomplished with uh, chicken wire fencing or hardware cloth, uh, something like that. Um, And if you do protect, especially trees, you'll want to make sure that you get it high enough that you take into account the snow cover too. So 24-inch high uh, or 18-inch high chicken wire fencing may work now, but if we have six or nine inches of snow on the ground, the rabbits can get above it. So um, I typically use 36-inch tall chicken wire to protect my young trees and shrubs from those uh, destructive little bunnies. All right. And there's, of course, no way to know how much snow we'll have on the ground this winter. I know. (laughs) Yeah, you just got to plan for the worst and hope for the best. All right. Uh, Diane in Ames wants to know if it's too late to plant trees this fall and how late is too late. Uh, You can plant trees uh, through early November, uh, deciduous trees through early November. If it's an evergreen, it's too late. They won't get established in time to make it through the winter really well. But deciduous trees you can plant while they're dormant um, all the way up until the ground is frozen. Um, So if you can get a shovel in the ground, you can still plant it here this fall. And planting it is definitely easier and better for the tree than trying to overwinter it in the container. So if you have it, get it in the ground. Um, You can do that all the way up until the ground freezes. 
All right. And let's go to the phones. 866-780-9100 is the number to call. Angie is on the line. Hi, Angie. Hi. Hi. What's your question? Um, I have some grapes growing in my yard. I have about a dozen vines. And over the last couple of years, they've gotten kind of like scab little blister things on the leaves. And they seem to spread. Um, And I'm wondering if you can give me some insight into those. They still fruit and do well, but they're really ugly because the leaves all kind of pinch up with these sores. Okay. Um, You know, I'm not sure exactly what that could be, um, but grape does have a number of disease pressure um, issues, uh, different fungus and and, um, bacteria and viruses, like the whole gamut. Um, if you're still getting a good crop, okay. um, what I would focus on is good fall cleanup, getting all of that leaf debris um, after it's fallen off away from that area. Most of those foliar um, fungi and um, mostly fungi can overwinter and then reinfect the new growing foliage potentially in the spring. And so good fall cleanup goes okay. a long way uh, for helping with that. If you notice it's starting to affect um, production, um, then you probably need to take more more uh, concerted steps, um, making sure you have a good pruning program so the canopy has good air circulation and light um, penetration, and making sure that um, and and then you may have to resort to some fungicides. But identifying exactly what okay. it is will be really important to getting the right fungicide. Um, and the plant and insect diagnostic clinic can help a lot with that. Um, if, okay. if that's something you're interested in, now is not the time to send it in cause it's dead. Yeah. So they can't figure it out this sure. time of year, but if you notice it next year, uh, you can do that. And okay, yeah. very good. Thank you. Thanks a lot for the call. 866-780-9100 is the number to call. Email talkofiowa at iowapublicradio.org. And Andy's got a squash question for you, Dan. Hi, Andy. All right. Hello. Hi, what's oh. your question? Um, last last year I bought pumpkins for carving at Halloween time, and as I was carving one of them up, I noticed that the flesh was kind of like the flesh of spaghetti squash, which is my favorite yes. squash. So I decided to scrape some of it out and cook it and eat it, and it had an even better flavor to me than spaghetti squash did. I just bought huh. it at a grocery store out of a pile of pumpkins. I have no idea what kind it was. So I was wondering if it was just some sort of weird hybrid or if there's actual a variety like that so I could find again. I'd like to buy some to eat them if I could figure out what it was. Yeah, I've noticed that too. You know, it really, you know, when I've been uh, scooping out pumpkins to carve with my kiddos, that some are more stringy than others. And I honestly, I have never paid attention. So I can't answer, like, I cannot. I I don't have a solid, uh, uh, you know, option for you, um, except to say that these things are very, very closely related. If you, um, if yeah, you can totally eat these things, and um, and and I wish I could advise you better on, you know, go for this dual purpose carving spaghetti squash uh, (laughs) squash. I don't have that one for you, but um, I I, I also I I thank you for your for your observation, and I um. it's it's uh, it's uh, those are two of my favorites as well. Spaghetti well, squash. Andy, yeah. have you considered going the other direction and just buying spaghetti squash and carving that? 
<laughs> no, I hadn't thought about that. <laughs> I don't know. Something to think about. Andy, thanks a lot for the call. 866- sorry, Andy. <laughs> sorry, yes. My, my bad. 866-780-9100 <laughs> is the number to call. And we've got a couple more squash comments here. This is John who writes, 50 some years ago, I said to my mother, how about if you make another pumpkin pie like you made last week? To which she replied, I haven't made a pumpkin pie for years. Those have all been squash pies. And um, <laughs> Steve on the line in Mason City, I think, has a similar experience. Hi, Steve. Hi. I uh, was uh, har- harvesting uh, seeds from a uh, buttercup squash and thought, well, it mm-hmm. might be easier instead of cutting them left and right if I cut it uh, top, a top half and a bottom half. To do that, I mm. took off the handle. And it was easier to uh, scoop out the seeds. So then I had two pie-shaped uh, squash, uh, baked them that way, and they they proved uh, easier to eat because the uh, the skin sat on a plate, and as you scooped it out, uh, you couldn't go through the uh, the skin as easily. Nice. And it looked pretty nice oh. too. Look, it looked pretty nice too. Uh, it looked like a a pumpkin pie. Uh, so wow. just just t- tumbled into, a, uh, to me, a new way of uh, preparing the favorite squash. Yeah, Steve, thanks for, for sharing your experience. I have a chef friend who uh, sometimes uses the shell of squash as a bowl for squash soup, which is pretty fancy as well. 866-780-9100 is the number to call with your questions. You can also email talkofiowa at iowapublicradio.org. Susan has a question. She says, I'm listening to Hort Day and digging up my gladiolus bulbs. What are top tips for curing and storing? So um, this is true for any of these tender perennials, things like gladiola, canna, uh, dahlias, um, uh, caladiums. The the best thing to do is uh, dig them up out of the ground, brush off as much soil as you can, let them sit for a day or so so that, that any soil that might be on the surface kind of dries a little bit. And then you, the the key is is having the right balance of kind of, uh, moisture and having a good temperature. Um, the temperature should be around 50 to 55 degrees. That's like good root cellar temperature. Most of us don't have a root cellar, but many of us have a corner of the basement that's cooler um, that this would work really well with. And checking in on them at least every two to three weeks to make sure that whatever it is that you're holding them in doesn't dry out completely. You don't want them to be wet because then they get kind of moldy or have some kind of fungus on them, but they can't dry out completely either. And so a lot of gardeners have luck storing them in things like coarsely milled sphagnum moss or vermiculite or even sometimes perlite um, because these materials have a lot of um, airspace in them, but they hold a little bit of moisture so that these things don't um, dry down and, and die completely. So that to me is actually the hardest part about saving these bulbs over the winter is it's not the harvesting um, in the fall after the foliage dies back. It's holding on to them and, and making sure that I remember to look at them at the end of January <laughs> to make sure that they haven't dried out or to add just a little bit of moisture um, so that they don't dry out completely 
before I can get them back in the ground in early May. All right. Uh, let's go back to the phones. Michelle is on the line in Mount Vernon. Hi, Michelle. Good morning. Hi. What would you like to talk about? Yeah. Well, I have a question regarding uh, hydrangeas in containers. I have two Bobo hydrangeas that are in individual containers. They're, the containers are metal, about 21 inches high with a 16-inch diameter full of dirt. And I'm just uh, wondering if I need to move them inside the garage for the winter or if they should winter okay. They will definitely need some protection with that root system above the ground. So there's two approaches you can take. You can do the unheated structure approach. So this would be like an attached unheated garage or a three-season porch. As long as you know you can keep that that room or that structure between um, colder than 45 degrees but warmer than like 20. A lot of times that's mm. really hard to do. Um, mm -hmm. But if you have a space like that, that can be really convenient. The other option is to to basically plant them in the container. So dig a hole big enough for the two containers to plop down into the ground. You're insulating that root system in the, in the earth um, because that root system isn't as cold hardy as the upper portions are. Um, but you do have, and so you do have to protect it. And I like to sink them in the dirt. I have to dig holes and, you know, that is more work, but it is more reliable um, to get them to mm -hmm. overwinter that way than for me to pull them into my unheated garage because I know that garage gets warmer than that on a warm sunny day and colder than that on some of those extreme days we get in early February. So um, mm -hmm. uh, that, that war that's usually what I recommend folks do is dig them in, uh, heal them into the ground somewhere. They can be pot to pot. You know, you can jam them together. It's fine. Um, usually you'll want to put a little mm -hmm. fencing around them to keep the bunnies away um, or um, voles or mice or some of those other things too. And then just let them overwinter that way. And then as soon as you can get them out of the ground, um, after about mid-March, you can pull them out and um, continue to grow them in the containers. Okay. All right. Thank you. Yeah, thanks a lot for the call, Michelle. You can join the conversation. You can give us a call at 866-780-9100. You can send email to talkofiowa at iowapublicradio.org. And we have just a moment before we get to the break, Aaron. and that's advice that, that you give a lot. I mean, basically for anybody who has something sitting out that they meant to plant or that they're trying to yeah. overwinter, that trick yeah. of, of burying the pot really insulates things, right? Yeah, it can help a lot. And um, a lot of people like the idea of pulling it into the garage, and it is very convenient. You do have to watch watering when you do that, so it can dry out uh, if, you, if you do that. But almost all of us have these spaces that are cool, but they get too cold or too warm at some point in the winter season, and that's what causes problems. So the digging them in is more reliable. All right, we'll be back in just a moment. I'm talking with Aaron Style and Dan Phileas, Iowa State University Extension Horticulture Specialists, and you can join the conversation, 866-780-9100, or send email to talkofiowa at iowapublicradio.org. This is Talk of Iowa. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion, including above and beyond cancer. 
It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. It's Horticulture Day today. And with me, Dan Phileas and Aaron Style, Iowa State University Extension Horticulture Specialists. You are welcome to join the conversation with your questions. Give us a call, 866-780-9100, or send email to talkofiowa at iowapublicradio.org. And Nick has a question. He says, how late in the year can I put down fertilizer on my yard? Um, the typical fertilizer application in the fall can happen. There's usually one in September and then one uh, four to six weeks later. So depending on when you did it in September, if you did it in September, that could be early November and that's fine. Um, uh, this weekend, next weekend would probably still be just fine for a fertilizer application in the lawn. All right. And let's go back to the phones. Randy's on the line in Brooklyn. Hi, Randy. What's the best way to graft trees and when? What? Okay, wait. You're you're pretty quiet, Randy. Say that again. When's the best time to graft trees? In the springtime, and what's the procedure? All right. When is the best time to graft trees? Yeah. So grafting is usually most successful in the very early spring, while the plants are still dormant. So in Iowa, most of the state, this is going to be around early to mid-March. And that's when you collect the budwood or the scion um, and and graft them to your rootstocks. And then they come out of dormancy and start to, you know, fuse together as they do with a graft. But that's the general timing uh, for most plants, uh, woody plants that you're grafting. That would be the best kind of window. All right. And he was also asking about the procedure, which is uh, that's probably a little complicated for right now. But where's the best place to well, turn and... to learn how to do it? <laughs> yeah, it's it's and it's hard to describe on the radio, too. Yeah. It's like one of those. This is one of those things it's like pruning where to make the pruning cuts really easy to put in a picture. and It's really hard to describe on the radio. Um, uh, there's a, there's some workshops out there um, offered at extension offices, offered at public gardens. Um, they're usually late winter, early spring is when they occur. Um, and those are good resources. There's also abundant resources, um, video resources. Um, look for those that come from, whether they're from Iowa State Extension or from an extension service in another state, or those that come from, um, like botanical gardens, um, those kind of places, they tend to have the most reliable, um, and, and, um, kind of research-proven um, te- uh, ideas for, for grafting. All right. Randy, good luck with that project. You can give us a call with your questions, 866-780-9100, or send email to talkofiowa at iowapublicradio.org. Kathy's on the line next in Fairfield. Hi, Kathy. Hi, Charity. What's your I question? I have a question. I have a question about potting um, clematis. I'd like to grow clematis in pots, but I don't know if it's safe to do that. And if I did, how I would overwinter them to keep them going. Yeah, you can grow them in a container, um, but you would have to overwinter them much in the same way we were talking about earlier with the hydrangea, um, with Michelle and her hydrangeas. So um, you would have to bury the container um, in the winter. Uh, clematis is a big favorite for both deer and rabbits. So you would definitely want to protect them um, 
uh, over the winter to, uh, to hopefully limit browsing. But Clematis also respond very well to um, cut back in browsing um, and grow back. So sometimes it's not a huge issue, but you would need to protect that root system. Otherwise, um, a nice large container uh, can work pretty well for um, Clematis. Um, as long as, you know, uh, Clematis are a plant that don't love um, hot root systems. So a lot of times folks who have ground covers at the base of their Clematis see better growth on their Clematis. So you'd want to make sure that your container doesn't get, uh, especially in the heat of summer, isn't in a spot where it's getting like super warm. Um, uh, protecting it or, or putting it in a spot where it's maybe not in the late day sun that's really warm uh, would probably also be beneficial if you're keeping it in the container more long term. All right. Thanks so much for the call, Kathy. And next up, let's go to Roger in Des Moines. Hi, Roger. Hello. How are you? Good. What's your question? Well, I have uh, two, or, excuse me, clematis pants and two thornless rose bushes, and I need to know about cutting them back. How do I do that? When should I have done that, or can I still do it? I'm, yeah, I'm just beginning I... this process. <laughs> so there's, uh, I'll start with the roses. Uh, roses are going to be in the spring. Um, mid to late March is the best time to do the pruning then. You want to leave as much material there as possible to go through the winter. And then in the spring, you're going to remove um, anything, any dieback. Most roses, even hardy shrub roses, will have a little bit of stem dieback over the winter. Um, so that's what you're going to remove um, late winter, um, end of March kind of time frame. The clematis is a little trickier because the best pruning, for, the best pruning method for a clematis depends on its variety. They're, they're classified in three different types. And one type you'll prune um, all the way down to the ground in spring. Another type you'll prune some of it out in the spring. And then, you know, if you don't know the type of clematis that you have, start with a hard cutback um, late spring. If you don't get any flowers, then you want to um, change up your method and only remove dead material um, in um, mid to late spring. Um, so that you don't lose your flowers. But most of the clematis that are commercially available that many gardeners have are the types that will flower when you do that hard cutback down to a foot from the ground or six inches from the ground um, and allow them to re-sprout and regrow. The other thing I'll mention is you don't have to trim clematis at all. It'll get a little, like, hairier looking, but you don't have to do it at all, and they'll still bloom and grow nicely. Yeah, I haven't cut it back before. This is the third year for it. And I was talking to a friend of mine that said, well, she cuts hers back all the time. They've always grown and they've always bloomed, but I, I thought maybe I was making some kind of a mistake. So, No, some of the clematis respond really well to that prune back. Autumn, um, uh, Sweet Autumn uh, clematis is a good example of that. And that one's so vigorous, it's nice to cut it back. Uh, but many of the other large flowered ones also respond well to that. If you notice you lost your flowers, you'll have to change it up a little bit. Okay. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks a lot for the call, Roger. 866-780-9100 is the number to call. You can also send email to talkofiowa at iowapublicradio.org. Next on the line is Amy. Hi, Amy in Dubuque. Hello. Hi. What's your question? Good morning. 
My question is I have a beautiful garden of knockout roses, and I've never had mildew on them. This year, I have some mildew come fall, and I was wondering what I should do about that. Uh, powdery mildew late in the season isn't usually a huge concern because it is so late in the season. It's not going to um, stress the plant out um, too much. Uh, I did notice this year that late fall or late summer, early fall was like perfect breeding ground for powdery mildew on a lot of plants. And we saw a lot of, you know, uh, Dan had mentioned earlier about squash and pumpkins having powdery mildew and they looked great all summer and then at the very end of the season they got real bad um and that those same conditions the same powdery mildew uh the powdery mildew that's on a rose is not going to infect a pumpkin and not vice versa they're slightly different but they love the same Mm -hmm. conditions so um you're likely to see them all at the same time good fall cleanup will help um i wouldn't preemptively spray if you've never seen it before if you start seeing a pattern um, then you'll want to the only good way to prevent powdery mildew is to do preventative fungicide sprays so you have to do it before you see powdery Mm -hmm. mildew knockout rose typically um, is pretty disease free except for in really stressful or high pressure years Um, and for Mm -hmm. for this year uh, that happened late in the season okay yeah. Thanks a lot for the call, Amy. And next we'll go to Craig in Des Moines. Hi, Craig. Hello, Charity. Hi, what's your question? Well, I uh, we've got a clematis, I mean, uh, excuse me, hydrangea, two bushes. Uh, and the last couple of years, they haven't been flowering very much. Uh, previous to that, they seemed to flower pretty good. We uh, have blue and pink flowers that come on them. And we cut them back usually in the spring. And I was just wondering, um, I think I heard that they like acidic soil. So should I add coffee grounds uh, to it? And should I fertilize them? Is that why we're maybe not getting as many flowers? Yeah, this is a tricky uh, situation. So you, you mentioned these were the kind that have kind of a, a round flower cluster that can be pink or blue, right? Correct, yes. Okay, so that type of hydrangea, um, sometimes called big leaf hydrangea, hydrangea macrophylla, this plant yes. um, is, uh, it dies to the ground here in Iowa. Um, it's only root hardy here in Iowa. And uh, there are several cultivars out there that will bloom on the current year's growth, which is, allows us to grow it here in the state. Most of the older cultivars, or many of the cultivars that you find in other parts of the country, especially the southeast, bloom on last year's growth. But since our growth dies to the ground every year, we wouldn't see flowers. So these these cultivars, the most notable um, one is called Endless Summer, um, bloom on current year's growth. We have noticed that over time, they still um, stop blooming. And it's not exactly clear why. Uh, Endless Summer is a very popular cultivar. It's sold very widely. And it does do this for a lot of gardeners. It'll be really wonderful three four maybe even five years and then it just stops blooming on on uh-huh. that new year's growth and there's not much you can do about it you can fertilize it you'll get lots of lovely green leaves but you won't it won't promote the flower bud development um, so when you see uh-huh. that often the best course of action is to replace it unfortunately 
There are some better oh. cultivars that are a little less likely to do this than Endless Summer. So Endless Summer is the one you'll find almost anywhere. But there are some others that are pretty readily available. Twist and Shout and Blushing Bride are two that seem to be a little bit better about this um, than the original Endless Summer Hydrangea. But this is a phenomenon that many of us experience um, with these particular plants. Um, and it's a little disheartening, but I assure you it wasn't something you did. Um, this is about how uh. this plant grows in Iowa. So um, it's just something we have to deal with. And, and unfortunately, replacement is typically the best option. Craig, thanks for your call. You get to keep breaking that news to people over and over again, Aaron. I know. I know. (laughs) You know, everybody loves these hydrangeas, right? They're so colorful. They're so beautiful. They're on the cover of every other gardening magazine. Um, And we're so happy we can grow them here in Iowa because of these new cultivars that bloom on current year's growth. But then it turns out that these cultivars aren't long-lived in our gardens. Well, the plant is, but the, the, the phenomenon of blooming on current year's growth is not for right. some reason. And we and don't actually know exactly why. We want them for their happens. flowers, so that doesn't work out yes. very well. So I have a I have a squash-related question for you, Dan, that you may not know the answer sure. to. Jimmy wrote uh-huh. in, he says, I have harvested some of my birdhouse gourds just before the frost and some after. Which was the best approach and what's the best way to dry them? Sure. And for, so... Harvesting before frost is the most reliable if the plant is ripe, if the gourd is ripe. And if it's got a nice hard rind, then you're probably in the clear. Um, and so, in short, uh, if, if all is, is going normally, plant harvesting before frost is the best way to go about it. Um, and that, and then, and then put it in a nice, you know, uh, a place that's warmer than than freezing to to dry it down, good ventilation, and you'll get a nice uh, you'll get a nice product. All right, and I guess it just depends on the gourd and how big it is, how long it takes to really dry, right? Yeah, it, it, this is where paying attention to the uh, days to maturity on the crop when you're planting is really important. I know that uh, in my garden, I have a shorter window because I'm planting I'm a bed into squash after a different crop. And so I always go with 90 day to maturity ones. That's about as short as they get, um, for the, for this, um, for winter squash and pumpkins and gourds. Um, but you know, some of them take 120 days and that's, that's more time than a lot of people end up, um, having to devote to them, but pay attention to that. And that should help steer you right. All right. Emily has a question, Aaron. She says, I live near Algona. When should I cover my rose bush? She also says, I usually use a large tile and fill it with leaves. Hmm. Yeah. Um, typically, mid to late November is a good time um, across much of the state, even in the kind of north, uh, north parts of the state. What we want to do is let that rose go fully dormant before we put any winter protection on it. Because if we put the winter protection on too early, it can slow the process of the plant going into dormancy. And you'll actually see more winter damage because of that. So wait until it gets fully dormant. Um, you can put anything around the rose to hold in uh, the material, so a tile works. I, I like to use chicken wire, uh, fencing, and some little rebars. Um, the the thing I will, um, if you if you've had okay success with leaves, then you can use those. But straw is a better option because leaves often compact a lot and can really smother um, plants. But um, woody plants, it's a little easier to use leaves 
on than herbaceous plants or things like strawberries and some of those other things that we put winter protection on. So um, if, you've, if you've been okay with the leaves, then you can probably continue to use this. But the ideal mulching um, material is straw. All right. And Lisa says, recently we were going to try to upright a leaning tree. We removed the landscape tubing we'd had around it, but got disrupted by yellow jackets. Yikes. We inadvertently left the tubing off and discovered damage to the tree, I think by rabbits, as we already have a four foot high fence around the tree. What's the best thing I can do to try to protect it through the winter? Uh, make sure that the protection is there and wait and see how the tree recovers. There's no paints, no prune, pruning tars or or pastes or anything like that that will help the process along, and some of them will actually slow the process. You just have to wait and see and hope the tree grows um, grows out of it. All right, water and, it well. Yeah. And Bill in Sac City has planted a lot of trees in his deer-infested timber property. He says that he gets his deer protection up by August 1st, and his preference is woven <laughs> wire and at least five foot or higher. So <laughs> Bill knows yeah. of what he speaks. Aaron and Dan, thank you both so much for being here today. It's been my pleasure. Dan Phileas, Iowa State University Extension Horticulture Specialist. Aaron Style, ISU Extension Horticulture Specialist. We will be back again next Friday with Horticulture Day here on Talk of Iowa. I'm Charity Nebbe. Have a great weekend.